Welcome to the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA. I'm Jack Ford. So, name, image, and likeness, NIL. If you co follow college sports at all, and even if you don't, you have been besieged probably over the last few months by this question of name, image, and likeness and how it pertains to the world of college athletics. So we thought we'd talk about it today. And we're delighted to have three folks who, who know quite a bit about what they're talking about Hopefully. when we get to here. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, delighted to be joined, joined by Dave Schnazy, who's the Vice President for Academic Membership Affairs at the NCAA. Terry Steve Gronow, Vice President of Division Two, and Dan Dutcher, Vice President of Division Three. So welcome to all of you. Thanks, Thanks And as we said, hopefully we'll be able to shed some light on all of this. It is confusing, it is perplexing, uh, and it is ever-changing. So let's start, probably the, a good place to start is the beginning, quoting Charles Dickens, to begin my life at the beginning of my life. Let's, let's, let's start with that. And Dave, let me ask you first, this whole notion of name, image, and likeness, what does it mean in terms of college athletics right now? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, Jack. And this is a really important time, right? I mean, like you said, everybody cares about this. Whether you're a student athlete or a coach or a president at a college, a senator, everybody cares about this issue, right? And so everybody's talking about it. Um, if you go all the way back to what started this whole thing, the amateurism model is based on students playing other students, other college students playing other college students, right? Not employees playing employees. And so the, the amateurism rules have evolved over time. And we're at a point now in the last, you know, as long as I can remember, and it's been a long time, that student athletes cannot profit from their name, image, and likeness. And so that's where we are today. But again, really important time. We're going to head into the membership in a couple of weeks, or maybe even next week, I think it is. And we're going to talk about this and get input from the membership on this. Let's talk a little bit more about, again, the evolution of this rule. Uh, we hear often, when people are talking about this issue, they'll say, well, wait a minute. If I'm a, a college music major, and I'm particularly talented, and I'm still a full-time student, mm. but in the meantime, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna put together some songs. I write, I perform, and I'm gonna get them out there. I'm gonna throw them up on YouTube, I'm gonna sell them, I'm gonna have my picture on them. We know that that's okay. Indeed, that would probably be applauded by the music department at the college mm. or university. Why is it then, how has it evolved, that for a student athlete, that notion of saying, Okay, people know who I am. So therefore, I can take my talent, similarly to the music student who takes their talent, I can take my talent and I can make some money off of it. Yeah. How have we gotten there and what's the reasoning behind it? So let me take a step back and, and talk about why people should care about this. So we have, what, 500,000 student athletes. We have 60 to 70,000 coaches. We have 1,100 member institutions and conferences. That's a lot of people, right, involved in this space. And we have to have some regulation in that space or we have complete chaos, right? So one could look at the music example you gave and say it's a really easy example to figure out and say, why can't we do this for everybody? It's hard then to disentangle the real musician from the student athlete who's a pretend musician and how much money that person is making based on their music skills versus their athletic ability, right? That was the scare a long time ago. We've progressed, 
we've heard, the membership has listened to student athletes and others. So we're making progress on that front and that's the issue we intend to attack right now. That's the exact example. Terry, let me ask you to, to jump in on this also. In, in terms of the reasoning behind it, right? So if somebody came up to you on the street and they say, hey, Terry, I, I see that you're involved in college athletics. You, you, you work with the NCAA. Um, they might not know what Division II means mm -hmm. unless they're a sports, college sports fan. But they say to you, why are we so concerned about this name, image, and likeness thing? What would your answer be? I think it's because, you know, in college sports, we have this idea of recruiting. In no other sort of athletic realm do you recruit student-athletes to come and participate on your campus. It's unique to the collegiate model. I think it's what makes the collegiate model exciting. But you have to make sure you have a level playing field around the recruitment of student-athletes. And so whatever changes we, we look to make, we want to make sure that we adhere to that recruitment model in college athletics, what makes us um, so unique. So when we're talking about rules and regulations, it's all about how do we make that recruiting model fair so that one school doesn't get an advantage over the other, which is why you try to have some type of regulation across all schools. Dan, from, from your perspective, let me ask you this. Sure. Not only from the Vice President of Division III, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast you in the voice of the institutional historian. You <laughs> okay. You've been here at the NCAA for a while now. You, so you've seen a lot of the evolution that has taken place. So go back to when you first started here, in the mid-'80s, uh, yeah, I believe. Yeah, 1986. 86. Right. Okay. So talk about this idea. Did anybody, did anybody focus at all, if you will, pardon the pun, on name, image, and likeness back then? And if now, how is, what's driven the evolution? You know, I don't think folks ever necessarily focused on name, image, and likeness. Um, I think some of the attention to that to be frank, is a product of the rise of new media, um, social media as an example. But the one theme that I, I think you've heard my colleagues mention that I, I do want to uh, uh, jump on because I think it's very consistent with how this has arisen and, and how difficult it is to deal with this issue. As large as we are as an association with over a thousand members, um, we have a lot of diversity within our membership. Um, we have large schools, we have small schools, we have schools in the middle, we have schools that are well-endowed, we have schools that are less well-endowed, we have schools that have uh, religious missions, we have schools that, that, that don't. Um, in my experience in, the, in my time in the NCAA, one of the real basic functions that we provide as an association is this level playing field that Terry mentioned. So recruiting is important. Um, but also how student-athletes are treated while they're on campus is equally as important. And ultimately, I think it's pretty consistently been our responsibility as an association to try to ensure that there's this consistent opportunity that produces fair competition. Uh, and so when you start to look at opportunities to monetize on name, image, and likeness, um, not all opportunities are going to be equal depending upon your institution, depending upon their location, depending upon their media presence, depending upon their resources. So those are the kinds of issues that I think help to complicate this. Add into that the fact that you've got institutions in three divisions with, with also some distinguishing features, and I think that just adds to the challenge we have in front of us. I, I definitely think we can accomplish uh, very important work in this area, but it, it, it adds to the complication. And, for those of us who work in the governance structure, 
that's our responsibility, how to, how to attack this issue in a way that gets things done. Ensuring, though, that you have feedback from all those various constituencies that participate in the governance structure in order to, to come up with the best product, the best answer that you possibly can. I want to get to in a couple of minutes the notion of, of where, we're, where we're going sure. from here. But I think to understand where we're going, we still need to, to, to truly understand where we've been and why this has been a concern for these years. So uh, let talk, let's talk about the, the, the fears, the challenges that are, have been behind the notion of prohibiting up to now, profiting off of name, image, and likeness. Terry, you mentioned recruiting. In what sense? Why would somebody listening to this and say, well, why how could recruiting be impacted by this? What is the fear um, that, the impact, that, that recruiting can be impacted by allowing people to benefit monetarily from name, image, and likeness? I think it builds off of some of the things that, that Dan talked about. So, you know, the diversity of our members is one of the most positive things about the NCAA, but it can be challenging. So if you're in a high-resource institution, maybe more in an urban locale, you have many more opportunities than if you're a smaller institution in a more um, regional or, um, you know, not as big of a city. And so how do you level the playing field um, there. I think people also are concerned about third-party involvement and how do you regulate boosters, you know, kind of um, alumni of the school, boosters of the school. Um, will, will certain schools have an advantage over others because, you know, they have boosters that can, you know, potentially afford more. So how do you um, regulate it to keep those third-party boosters, influences, out of this where you just really truly want to focus on what's best for the student athlete. Sometimes trying to focus on what's best for the student athlete, you have to sometimes control or at least help regulate some of those outside influences that are quite frankly, I think sometimes difficult to manage. And, and so, so ideally, maybe you're arguing that students, high school students should be making decisions about where to go to school based on the athletic program and the academics at that university, right? And not on potential NIL revenue. So, that, so that the, the fear will be, if I'm a high school student and I'm looking at three universities, all right, University A, University B, and University C, the fear is that I might make the decision because there might be a booster who says, you know, you come here, I'm, I'm, you're going to promote my car dealerships yeah. and we'll pay you for doing that. Yeah, I hate to be over, overly dramatic, but that, that is a concern, right? And so that the window of opportunity for NIL exploitation, if you will, it may be fairly limited for some student athletes. So if they make a decision to go to a school because the NIL value or the market's higher there, that's a four-year, maybe even a five-year proposal. The education they get at any other school is a lifetime endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. That sets them up to succeed for the rest of their life. In, in, in terms of the reality of the situation, we talked before about almost half a million scholar-athletes in the three divisions. When you're talking about the major revenue sports, right, college football, men's basketball, what if, have we been able to assess how many of the student-athletes might actually be involved in a scenario if this becomes, to some extent, um, it, it, if it comes into existence, is this something that we're concerned that, you know, all 110 guys on the football team are going to be involved, or all 15 guys on the basketball team? Or are we talking about a, a, a smaller or maybe even an unknown number? 
Ben, do we know this? You know, Jack, from a, from a D3 perspective, um, I think there are concerns across the board. Um, D3 has no high-profile revenue sports. We like to say in Division Three because no sports really create revenue. All sports are created more equally. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is athletics is an inherently competitive industry. Folks want to win. And I don't care whether it's field hockey, soccer, lacrosse, whatever the sport is, um, student athletes want to win, coaches want to win. Uh, and so opportunities to get a competitive advantage through something like name, image, and likeness um, are going to be taken seriously. And so it's a collective challenge to try to deal with, with that concept in a way that works for our membership and also works for our student athletes. But I think no matter what the division, no matter what the sport, folks are in it to win. And if there's an opportunity for an advantage, they're going to they're, they're, they're look for that. I mean, one of the, the reasons why even in Division Three we, we have a fairly robust rule book is because at some point somebody thought of or asked a question about how to uh, push the envelope. And this may be another example where we have to be sure that we can, we can uh, accomplish what we need to accomplish in a way that, that's enforceable and, and consistent across the board. What is the NCAA? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, was gonna, I just want to add to that because I think the one thing we, we, talk, we were talking about, like, where we've been and, and the fears that have been there. I think when you start talking to people now about these issues, they are seeing opportunities. They are not focusing so much on the fears now and focusing on what are the things that we can do for student athletes to make them more like regular students. What are the things that we can provide to them um, that make their experience overall better? Because it's about higher education and it's about being a college student. So how do we make more of their experience about being a college student? I'm hearing that now more than where we were, which is all the fears of recruiting, outside influence. I Though I mean, they're sure. still a part of the conversation. Yeah, that, but that doesn't mean that those fears have disappeared. They're right. not disappeared, right. but I do think people... The conversation people, has shifted. Yeah, yeah, people really see opportunities, I think, to, to figure out how to treat student-athletes like regular students and how can they take this full um, higher education college experience while they're there. Yeah, I, I think the evolution of, of some things has brought this issue to light where maybe it wasn't considered in the past. So yeah. again, you know, talking about things like, like video games or um, podcasts, so YouTube, personal YouTube channels, those things didn't exist years ago. And I think their evolution has brought some of this NIL issue to a, to a head. Years ago, the fear, I mean, you read some of the books, the old the, the stories, uh, the Junction Boys book uh, mm -hmm. about Bear Bryant coming into Texas A&M and, and apparently has a meeting with boosters saying something effective, I'm going to go out for lunch. When I come back, I want $100,000 in cash on the table so I can go buy me some football players. You know, the old days of the $100 handshake from the booster afterwards. Is, that happened is, at your place is, too, is, right? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I think it was $1.50, if I remember <laughs> correctly. Uh, we were at Yale. They said, go grab a cup of coffee and you're good. Uh, is... Is there a genuine fear that that opening up this notion of allowing student athletes in some way, shape, or form? We'll get to, to some ideas in a few minutes. But is there is there a genuine fear that that somehow might push the world of college athletics back into the the bad old days, or is that just kind of a sort of crying wolf, where some people who who just don't want to see this advancement or saying that's what we're going to end up with if we do. Guy gets a red Mustang in his driveway if he's going to go to University A as opposed to University B. What do we think? Well, I think Terry's going to comment on this, but before um, I let her do that, I want to interrupt and say <laughs> that 
we're talking about boosters. The vast majority of boosters are really in this for the right reason, right? Right. Right. And that's a good point Almost to make. Everybody good point is to make is the, the vast majority of the people who populate the world of intercollegiate athletics as participants, as coaches, as boosters or sponsors, in it for the right reasons, do it the right way. Right. They're friends. Of however, the yeah, however, however, the the rule, the problem is always: what about the brokes? Yeah. What about yeah. the renegades that are at this very small percentage, but that can do extraordinary damage? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to talk from a Division Two lens here. So, you know, we always talk about you can't legislate for the the one percent or this really small minority of people that may make bad decisions. I actually think our campuses um, are well situated to know when those things are happening and have good systems in place to monitor that. And, and similar to what you know, Dave said, I mean, people love college sports. Fans love college sports, and I'd rather, um, I guess, go into this with the expectation that we're all going to do the right thing than continue to try and legislate for the 1% because at the end of the day, college sports is just so much fun, mm -hmm. and I think we have to go into it with that approach. Let's, let's talk about where we're heading here, all right? Preface for that. Uh, again, if you followed this issue, you know there have been some court decisions that have dealt with this this issue of of opening up opportunities in name, image, and likeness. We know that legislatures are starting to get involved. California state legislature, governor signs a bill that's supposed to go into effect January of 2023, essentially allowing athletes within the state of California to benefit from name, image, and, and likeness, also involving the possibility of hiring agents. We know that there, there, there are any number of other states who are contemplating at least talking about this, and we know that the federal government is at least talking about this. So that has now positioned the NCAA to say, what are you all going to do about this? So what is happening? Dave, I'll come to you first. What is happening now in response to everything that's going on out there in terms of the NCAA and its membership taking a look at, at what indeed they are all going to do about this? Yeah, well, you're right, Jack. There are a lot of people politically in interested in this. So we have I'm making the numbers wrong because they change on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. So we have two federal bills in the system. We have 13 states that have filed or, or, or plan to file. So we have maybe another 20 states who are interested. We have over 30 states interested in this. And so obviously you can't have 50 different state laws operating in this space. So explain why. Explain well, for somebody out there because somebody might say, okay, well, why don't we let the, the government take care yeah. of this? Which some people would say, well, that's a scary notion to yeah. say, you know, uh, here, let, that's like saying, hi, I'm from the IRS. I'm here to help you. <laughs> um, so, but some people might say, well, why don't we just step back? The, the legislatures are representatives of the people. The federal government, representative of all the people. Why don't we let them decide? Yeah, well, I mean, I think my friends here would agree with me. And it's true for Division Two, II, Division Three, Division One. If you have a school in California competing against a school in Texas, you want them to play by the same rules. If California has more lenient rules than Texas, it's possible that California can recruit better student athletes and win. And so that's the competitive environment that those two are talking about earlier. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a big deal. You can't have 50 different laws when you're trying to have a national competition. But, so what, do you, what would your answer then be to somebody who says, well, look, we, we've always been a capitalist society. Mm. We are, when somebody says, you know, how much you're going to get paid for the, your job, and they'll say, what are you worth? The answer has always been, you're worth whatever somebody's willing to pay you. That's the essence of a capitalist market. 
So what do you say to somebody who says, look, every other business that's out there, essentially, if this, this company is, has more resources and have better opportunities, you're going to go work for them than you will for somebody else. And it's, it's kind of a, a, a Darwinian process mm -hmm. out there. Why should that not apply in the same fashion then to academic institutions and their involvement in intercollegiate athletics? What's the answer to that one? You know, Jack, I, I think this really comes back to the NCA's role um, in higher education, um, the NCA membership um, as institutions of higher education. Um, there's a fundamental difference from the NCA collegiate model and from the professional model, and there's a continuum, obviously, between the one and the other. Um, I think name, image, and likeness begins to leave behind the, 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 the full educational expense commitment that we see our colleagues in Division One and Two make, and it begins to add some potential compensation opportunities for individual student athletes uh, along that continuum. But to go to the to go to the full Darwinian model, to go to the, the full free enterprise model, um, I think our membership feels is inconsistent with with higher education. It be, it takes you down a path where the athletic experience and the related compensation will begin to eclipse the educational experience and the educational benefits that really are at the heart of what the NCAA commitment ha has been as an association. What is the, the public's reaction? And this is obviously not determinative. We don't make decisions based upon the public. But curious, I know there have been some polls that have asked the members of the public, what do you think about this notion of an amateur model? Is it worth preserving? What are we hearing from the public? You know, Jack, and, and again, uh, hopefully I don't get this, this wrong, but I, I think we've heard two different responses to two sides of, uh, of the same question. Um, my sense is when you when you ask the general public, should should student athletes um, be paid like professionals? Um, generally, the public answer is no. When you've asked folks, should student athletes uh, be able to receive potential compensation beyond um, the the full educational grant? Uh, folks, in particular, when you when you use that name that name image and like this moniker, folks tend to say, yeah, we're we're interested in that. Um, so again, it's, it's maybe it's a question of degree, um, but I, I think folks are, are very comfortable in, in keeping, recognizing the value of the collegiate model and keeping that as distinct from the professional model. And I think folks are interested in, in us um, doing our due diligence to explore opportunities for, for potential compensation related to name, image, and likeness. Right. So you get me nicely to the next question, <laughs> which is what's being done now? What has what, what the NCAA said that they are going to, and again, we talk about the NCAA, you know, more than 1,000 members, but what has the organization said they are going to do at this juncture, what they're in the process of doing at this juncture with regard to this issue? Yeah, so um, the Board of Governors, as you, as you probably know, they, they've set up parameters for this discussion. They've said on, on one end, we're not going to do nothing. We recognize that change is appropriate. It's for the benefit of student athletes, and this is the right thing to do. And I'll, I'll pause here and, and insert a parenthetical on that. And many people don't know, Jack, that we have a long history of modernizing and deregulating our rules. You can look at Division I, new cost of attendance rules, unlimited meals. All these things have happened over time increased academic support, increased um, funds for student athlete needs. Those kinds of things have happened over time in the right way. Being a lawyer, you recognize that we were not able to tackle the NIL issue when we had active litigation. We're now at a point where we can. 
we have a federal law that's that's out there. California is in place. We have some protection now to talk about it, right? So end of parenthetical. That's the left end of the, the spectrum. The right end is we're not going to have completely unregulated NIL. Okay. That's the professional model. That's a model that is not consistent with the college model, and we're not going to. So be that, I mean, you go out, you sell yourself any, to the highest bidder. Anybody highest wants bidder. to pay you for anything you want to do. Yeah, go could with our it. blessing. Yeah. That's and, nice. and institutions potentially could be actively involved in that extreme. Right, where the institution, the extreme, where the institution could be paying you money. Okay, so we we know the parameters. Yeah, what's being looked at in between? So there's a lot of space in the middle here, and I'll I don't want to dominate this, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of space in the middle to figure out what can and should be permitted. Right. So it, it's key now. We're going into the the convention, as I said. We have working groups in all three divisions tackling this. Um, originally, the Board of Governors appointed a working group. That group worked really hard, 24-7, really hard, and said, this is so complex, this is so challenging, and we need more time, number one, and we need input from the membership, number two. So that's what we're doing. We're talking to student-athletes, ADs, presidents. We're talking to congressmen, congresswomen, trying to get to the right answer. We can talk in much more detail about what that may mean, Jack, but I wanted to make sure that we understood what the sort of edges are and what we're trying to do in the middle to get to that right spot. I'm going to get to that in a second, but this is a good time, I think, to answer the question that folks who are not m members or representative of members in the NCAA might not understand, and that is the, the decision-making, rule-making mm. process of the NCAA. I know when I talk to people out there and they think, you know, the NCAA, they, basically tomorrow they should just change this rule, which sounds great. <clears throat> But can it do that, given its institutional, organizational structure? What has to happen for the NCA to change some of these rules, some of the things that, Dave, yeah, yeah. that you just mentioned? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the um, <clears throat> kind of sort of our process that you're going to start to see. Maybe people will begin to um, see that, I think, even play out next week at the convention. So just as you mentioned, no one here at the NCA national office has the ability to change a rule. We don't vote on changes. We don't make any changes. It's really left up to the 1,100 college and colleges and universities um, to make those rule changes. And so the opportunity that we have next week with all of those individuals gathering at the NCAA convention um, out in Anaheim is that we're going to be able to engage all of those members. They can start talking about this and begin to formulate what they think could be um, potential legislative changes that they ultimately will have to adopt. So it's important for them to start talking, talking with each other, coming up with ideas, and, you know, perfect opportunity to be able to do that next week. Are you getting any sense, Terry, in terms of your Division II constituency as to what that might look like? You know, I don't, I don't want you to lock and say this is what's definitely going to happen. Mm -hmm. But what sort of things, ideas are being floated? What are you hearing where, where your members might say, we might be okay with it. This may well work for us, work for our student athletes, work for everybody. What are you hearing? So in Division II, we've already um, been able to change a little bit of our legislation to allow student athletes that if they're doing something that's not related to their athletics ability, that they can market it. So you, you came up with that music example earlier. So you're a great football player, but you happen to be a marvelous musician. Yep. Right now in Division II, as long as you're not using your athletics ability, you can promote um, kind of your musical career or whatever so other. You, you could say, you know, Jack Ford, Vivaldi Concerto yes. that I'm going to provide for you, but I can't say Jack forward, you know, defensive back Correct. from one of your institutions. Yep, yep. So um, we're looking in Division Two. can we do what you just said? Can you say, that's, that's a lot of who our student athletes are. They recognize themselves as being athletes. 
as well as students. So why can't they be able to use their full kind of um, identity um, in their promotions? Plus, you have student athletes who, who create stuff because they're, they are athletes. So, you know, some of their passions are around their um, athletic endeavors. And so we had a student athlete who um, created something for their lockers. Well, it was based on her athletic knowledge that she was able to create this um, tool. So she should be able to use her athletics ability to then promote that. So I'm hoping we can get that one step further that regardless if it's athletic or not athletically related, that you can promote your name, image, and likeness around that product. Um, I do think that is a, a good first step. You know, when you talk about in Division two. you know, we have student athletes who um, just want to be able to do like a fee-for lesson. They want to be able to maybe you're a tennis player or yeah. a golfer. Yes. Want to be able to make a couple of dollars in, this, in your summer break teaching exactly. young kids how to play and, tennis. And be or golf. able to promote that they're a golfer. Okay, right. at, they're um, a college level golfer. Yep. Right, and, right. you know, I would take lessons from a college level mm. golfer or, you know, whoever <laughs> it might be. So, you know, can we let them use their, again, their name, image, and likeness to do things for that? I think those are initial first steps. And I think we're going to have a lot of conversations around those initial first steps next week. Dan, how about you from the Division three perspective? Yeah, I think Terry summarized it well. Um, I think we, we're kind of looking at three different potential categories of change successively. One is opportunities for students, and they just happen to be student-athletes, but the opportunities don't arise because of their student-athlete status. So you have a, a, an opportunity for somebody who writes a book. Um, a student writes a book, he happens to be or she happens to be a student-athlete, and on the dust cover they'd like to note that they're, that they're a student-athlete. I think the second category is opportunities like the fee for lesson that arise, and, and there's a, a relationship to your student-athlete status in that regard. Um, the third category probably is the biggest reach for Division Three, and that's where you have institutions that are actively involved in helping to manage opportunities that, that student-athletes um, uh, have, have made available. For us, Jack, one of the things D3 likes to, to talk about the philosophy statement and, 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 and then attack issues in, in that philosophical context. So there are a couple tenets in our philosophy statement that I, I really think we're, we're going to emphasize in our discussion next week. You know, one is in D3, we try to treat student athletes like, like other students. Um, another is that um, basically you try to maximize the educational opportunities that, that are available to students. A lot of these NIL opportunities have a, have a great educational component. If you're a marketing student and you want to be involved in, 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 in a modeling project, there's a lot of, there's a lot of educational value there, um, for example. So um, at the same point, one of D3's hallmarks is we don't permit institutions to be uh, involved in awarding aid that considers athletics. So when you, you think about that potential third category of, of NIL where institutions might be actively involved, that, that may not be a good fit for Division Three because of, uh, ultimately it, it's a way that student athletes might, might get some kind of athletically related income. But for us, we really need to, I think, focus first on, on philosophy, and then, and then I think we'll come out with, with answers in ways that are consistent with what we're about as a division. Dave, let me ask you to take a look at it from the Division I perspective, sure. right? Because I'm sure there, one of the concerns is, as opposed to what, what, what Terry and Dan just talked about, that you have a student-athlete, Division II, Division Three, who also has a talent and something else, and can they benefit from it? I suspect one of the concerns for Division One, again, football and, and, and men's basketball, is that you would have somebody 
benefiting not because they have a particular talent. They didn't write a book. They didn't write a, a movie. They didn't do any, put any music together. They're, they didn't design clothing. Mm -hmm. They are going to be paid for showing up. Mm -hmm. Basically, you're the quarterback at Acme University, and you show up someplace and just kind of smile and wave, and you're going to make money. So it's not based upon a talent where you're a student athlete who is talented and happens to be the athlete part, but it is primarily because you are an athlete, people will pay money to shake your hand. Yeah. Where do you see that fitting in? Well, that, that's, a, that's a really important question, and that's what the membership has to decide, whether there is some amount of regulation we can build around those circumstances to make that palatable. If you take a step back and you talk about the issues that they just referenced in Division One, um, a student athlete's work product, a student athlete's business, those kinds of things that are not related to athletics, in Division One already, it's not going to be a huge leap, Jack, because they already are granted waivers to do that now. Mm -hmm. Since 2015, uh, the staff has approved about 90% of waivers of those kinds of circumstances. But I think it's important that people know that. There, yeah, have been, there have been these things taking place. The, the question now is, do we institutionalize them where you don't have to do it through waivers? That's right. But rather, the general rule would be yes, unless. Yes. That's right. Now, to get to your question, though, once you start to move down that spectrum, away from the non-athletics, the work product, the business, into, into the unregulated use of NIL, that's when people start to get nervous. We're not saying that that can never be the case, that we can never have a rule permitting that. But what's the right set of rules to make that okay? Whether it's institutional involvement like Dan talked about, booster involvement like Terry talked about, or what other concerns you have, how can we regulate that to make it okay for the student athletes? Maybe the answer is we can't, but that's for the membership to decide over the next you know, three, four months. All those conversations are focused upon student athletes, and yet we don't hear that often from the student athletes mm. about their thoughts on this. I mean, I recently had a chance to moderate a panel at a gathering and I had five student athletes in various sports and I asked them about it. Mm. And they were very thoughtful. Um, they did not all say the same thing, which, which should not be surprising. Uh, but what are, what are we hearing, if you will, from student athletes in terms of their views mm -hmm. on these issues? It's a really important question. I'm sorry, I'm no, talking too much. Um, so we've had, we had student athletes on the, the working group, the working group that was appointed by the Board of Governors. So we had three student athletes in the room at all times talking about this. We have student athletes on all of the divisional working groups now. And we've all, all three of us have sat down and talked to student athlete advisory committees, you know, in all three divisions. So we've heard the voice. We're still going to hear more. But as far as the content, I'll defer to my colleagues. Well, I, and I think that, Dave, we had different divisional student athletes represented on the working group, which I think is, it was, was very important. And that working group consisted of, of reps from all three divisions in, in, different, in different roles. I think it was, that was very important. Um, in Division Three, for example, we're charging in particular four committees with, with taking this issue head on because they're the committees that will be affected most directly by this issue. And we're starting with our Student Athlete Advisory Committee at the convention at their meeting next Tuesday. They're going to be the lead committee in, in taking a deep dive on, on this information, and they're going to play a really important role um, in ultimately what our pres management council, president's council, will recommend to our membership um, toward the end of the summer. So we're, we're giving them direct responsibility in talking about 
the potential models and talking about these principles and, and, and giving us some, some feed, giving the rest of the governance structure some feedback. Have you, and I know this is to come, but up till now, are you seeing any, any general trends in terms of, of your, let's say, the Division III first student athletes as to how they're looking at this? I think they're still in the informational stage, Jack. I think after this week, I think um, our SAC will have a better idea of what we're really talking about and, and what the potential options are. And I do suspect after our discussion next week, they'll have a better idea of, of how uh, of, of what potential destinations they think are realistic from a Division Three perspective. One, one of the, there were so many great things about our D3 student-athletes, but one of the things I really love with our SAC is they have a, a really inherent appreciation for the D3 experience, and they appreciate it, they respect it, they want to keep it, and they don't want to fundamentally change it uh, in a way that, that will be negative to it. And so I'm, I'm very confident that, that their guidance on this will be, will be very productive. Terry, how about you? What are you hearing? Yeah, so, you know, so similar to Division Three, our, our um, National um, Student Athlete Advisory Committee in Division Two um, meets next week, and they're the first group to dive into this um, as well. So that's going to be helpful for future conversations um, throughout the the week. Um, they also have been helpful to, I think, really talk with their administration about social media and what that world is really like. Because I. I we don't really know what that world is and in the way. Certainly, yeah. They certainly don't want it to be a week from today. Exactly. Much, much well, less a year from today. <laughs> I always I'm not that old, but I really <laughs> don't get it either. So, um, but I think that that's been really helpful just to understand what their college experience, just to talk to them. Like, so what's your college experience? Like, what is social media? Like, what does it really mean for you as a student athlete and a student? And at the end of the day, they just want to be treated like other students. They under know and they understand that you know things are a little bit different being a student athlete, but they want to have those same opportunities as any other student on their campus. Would you would you agree that when we have spoken with the student athletes, that it's clear that they think or that they realize this is a challenging, this is a complex issue? Yes, and, and I and I that's why I think they're being so helpful. So you're not they, getting simplistic responses. Yeah, no, no, and that's what that's I, well, I mean, our student athletes, they just they they really think through their. Um, they're deep thinkers. They really try to analyze all the issues. They understand it's not simple. Those of them that are on the national SAC, because they have um, a little bit closer touch point to how um, governance works and how decisions are made, they're able to then help at the conference level and even at the school level begin to have these conversations. So throughout the entire spring, we're going to see continued conversations all the way down at the institutional level. Um, because you know, student athlete advisory committees at the campus level have conversations. They do it at the at the at the conference level. So you know, by the time you know we're at April May, I think the number of student athletes that are actually having more conversations around that is going to be more than even what was having it through the fall. Yeah, I think that's important. Our, our SAC national SAC representatives are very committed to getting feedback from their colleagues at the campus and conference level. They're, it's just not a small group deciding these issues the way they think is best, they, they, they do that informed by, by some pretty significant feedback. Yeah. Where are we in terms, Dave, right now of a, of a timeline mm -hmm. for the NCA and the, the you mentioned the, the various groups that are studying these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I know there are people out there saying, one of the concerns that you're seeing voiced by various legislators, or, or they're saying, well, you know, we can't wait for the NCA to act on this, which is why we 
have to act on. Yeah. So what what is what are we looking at in terms of a, a general time frame? Well, the, right the timeline is aggressive. People may disagree with that assessment. I mean, we're looking at proposals being voted on what January of 2021. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, again, lots of discussion to figure that out. We're having conversations with with um, senators, congressmen, congresswomen. And again, I, maybe I didn't articulate this very well at the very beginning, but we welcome those discussions, Jack. We, we're, we're glad that we're sitting down with them because it's a really hard issue and smart minds are at the table and we can use all the good thoughts that we can get. So again, aggressive timeline, it may seem like it's a long ways off, but it does take a lot to get this right. You know, I would say, Jack, um, a couple thoughts here. Number one, change is hard. Um, change is hard in, in, in any field, in any industry. The athletics isn't an exception. But talking again about my historical experience here, I'm seeing a commitment on behalf of our leadership and on behalf of our membership of recognition that we, this is something we've got to do. We have a fiduciary responsibility to our student athletes and to our association to, to, to move the needle on this. And I, I'm seeing a recognition on this issue that, that's very significant and I would say it's, it, it's historic. Yeah, and we have the right people at the table talking about this. All three divisions, like we said earlier, have working groups. We have really smart ADs, presidents, SWAs, student athletes at the table talking about this. And so conference so that, and calls. It's important, I think, people yeah. to know this is not just executives at the NCA that are making this decision. Yeah. Not at all. This is the, every level of those who might be impacted by it in any Yeah, shape. I mean, for example, we have six committees in Division Three that, that this is going to be a, a top uh, of mind issue for them to deal with in the coming year. And that's just an example from a Division Three perspective. Last question for each of you just sort of looking down the road mm. how long and i we're not you're not gonna be bound by this but within what sort of time frame do you think we will see action taken and generally what's it going to look like <laughs> do you think <laughs> you're all laughing at me as i ask that question i i i, I am confident we will have legislation for membership consideration a year from now what it'll look like, I'm not maybe bold or smart enough to figure that out, but I will say the legislation, legislation options for each of the divisions might be a little different. It may, be, it may reflect the, the focus and the, the uniqueness of each of the divisions. But I think in all three divisions, it, it's, going to, uh, it's going to be a positive opportunity for our student athletes to enhance their ability on, on, on NAL. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, you know, at least in the way that the Division two and three cycles work, um, we have to have stuff that's sponsored by our president's council or by our members by this coming summer. So we're talking July, August of this year in order for it to be up for a vote by the full set of um, Division two and three schools a year from now, so January of 21. And I think throughout the spring and into the summer, you're going to continue to see, I think, more concepts coming out, kind of narrowing the focus um, and have more very concrete um, legislation um, for membership vote by this summer. Mm -hmm. Dave, last word. I, I wish I had a magic eight ball yeah. because <laughs> if I did, that would mean that I knew the answer. And if I knew the answer, we would have been done a long time ago, but it's a really complex, challenging issue, as we talked about earlier, and nobody has had the answer yet. So I think what we're going to have is a better situation for our student-athletes, better opportunities to use their NIL, right? It's going to be better, but it may not be perfect.
And because it may not be perfect, we're not going to make everybody happy. We'd like to. Right. But we're probably not going to let. That's probably not going to happen. The reality is, in this world, rarely can you yeah. make everybody happy. So. Dave, Terry, Dan, thank you so much for this. It's been a really thoughtful conversation, as we said on, at, at the very beginning, at a very complex set of issues. And hopefully we'll all get together again down the road as things have moved forward and, and talk through it a little I bit I hope more. so, Jack. One yeah. last plug for our yeah. communication staff. If people care about this issue, they can go to the NCA webpage. They can look up NIL resources, and they can find out a lot more than what we just described yeah. today. And there's Indeed. a lot there. I, know that I, I went there looking yeah. at it in preparation for this, and you can get a lot of your questions answered by going there. So thanks for having us. Yeah. It's, it's my pleasure, all of you. Thanks so thank much you, Jack. for Thank us. you, Jack. Thank you. Does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA. I'm Jack. Ford. Thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon.